Many of you may have read this week, as I did, that uh, Coca-Cola, as uh, they say now, maybe they found the, the, the serum formula that uh, maybe from 40 years ago, it was found in something, paper, whatever, whatever, whatever. And the story you might know, 1886, Coca-Cola began. They have their secret formula for making the syrup, and uh, it is actually in a, in a protected vault. Uh, it uh, only two executives can know, and they're unidentified, which executives can know the serum formula and so forth. Now, how much of that's hype and so forth is debated and so forth and so on. But the point is this, you know they've got a formula. And that formula is a very important formula to them. In fact, they wouldn't be the company they are without that formula. You couldn't just, let's throw this together this week and next week we'll make it this way. They have a consistent formula and it's worked for them, right? Well, today we're going to look at a formula. We're going to look at a text in Scripture Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and we're going to see a formula. It's a formula that I am putting to the text to help you understand the text. I'll walk through that formula in just a moment. But know this, formulas are vital. I was a math major in college, and we had formulas, and we call them equations, right? And the way it worked is you would bank your grade on the fact that this equation or formula is accurate and good. And to the degree you could do that and did do that, you came out looking pretty good. I will admit there were many equations that I did not understand. I just wasn't smart enough. I'd look at the equation and go, how do they get that? How does that work? I don't understand. What? But that didn't matter. You just took it and you used it. I was too smart, on the other hand, to walk away from it and say, well, it doesn't make sense to me, therefore, I don't think I'll use it. Formulas are vital. Let me put the formula up here. And as I do, I'll do it in in two formulas, actually. One... Partial obedience, I'll just put O-B-E-D, then minus repentance, R-E-P, period, equals retribution. I'll explain this as we go through it. Got that? Partial obedience minus repentance equals retribution. Partial obedience plus Repentance equals reward. Now, I hope that this will help you grab hold of the teaching of the text we're about to get into. All right? Hold on to that. Let me give you a little bit of the context and understanding of this message as it sits in the whole of Revelation. We're in a series entitled, Everything is Going to Be All Right. That really is the theme of Revelation. It is a book written for the comfort of God's people. Now, as we look at the book of Revelation, we're just doing chapters 1 through 5. I've taught 4 all the way through in years past, but 
I was just thinking I would do chapters 4 and 5 and realized, no, I want to hold those texts. We're going to use those two, the two weeks, the week before Easter, Palm Sunday, and then on Easter Sunday, we'll use chapter 5. These are glorious texts. These texts are the most compelling of cases. It builds the case that, that is just foolproof of why we can say everything is going to be all right. You don't believe it? You go to chapters 4 and 5. Read ahead. Now, some of you are not going to understand until you're probably taught it. But I think you'll get a glimpse, at least, of what we're talking about. Chapter 1. What an amazing text it is. Uh, it probably is, is the most thorough self-description of Jesus we have anywhere in all of God's Word. So then you have between these two, chapter 1, chapter 4, and 5, you have chapters 2 and 3. And they're epistles. They're seven epistles. They're epistles to different churches that existed at that time around the Turkey area of today. And these seven churches are representing every church of all time throughout history in all places. Why does he do this? Why these chapters? In fact, I had a couple of people come up after, after this morning and say, man, I feel like I had a, a knife driven in my heart. I said, oh, let me tell you, if, if you felt that, know this, I had that happen on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Every day I was in this text. It was just like, it's a knife that drives in you. Well, wait, wait, wait. It's supposed to be a, it's supposed to be a text to comfort you. Does that make you feel badly? I think you'll see why he does this, but here's the point. He's writing to a people then that represent a people today. These are people who are discouraged, very discouraged. It's a people who are confused. It's a people who are scared. It's a people who are disillusioned because they're looking at the world in which they've been placed, the circumstances of life. And they're going, God, why? This doesn't make sense. I don't see it. Why would you do it this way? It I don't agree. It's a people who are tired. Maybe they agree. They say, I'm just tired. It's a hard life. I'm tired. And certainly a people who are compromising, who are saying, yes, Lord, but, yes, Lord, but, yes, Lord, but. And every church kind of has an emphasis. And through these seven churches, he's drawing a picture of who we are and what we're dealing with. And what he's saying is this, you want to be motivated to keep fighting when you're confused and disillusioned and tired and whatever. Do you want to keep fighting? Do you want to stay obedient? i tell you what you do. Here's what you do. You just need some good news. You need to know the end of the story. You need to know that everything is going to be all right. And so this is kind of the setup. Don't, don't ever take chapters 2 and 3 and pull them out and just take them. you got to have the rest of the story, okay? Now, in our text, as all these texts, he's going to say, don't fear. He's going to say, however, do obey. And in order to get there, you're going to have to repent. A few of the messages are going to be to churches that really didn't have anything really serious going on, so he just compliments them and encourages them. But 
the vast majority like this one. He's say, look, I got a little problem here, and here's what you got to deal with. And by the way, it's not going to be a little problem. It's going to be a big problem. So with that, let's look at verse 12. Beginning with verse 12 through 13, the first part of 13, we see an introduction of both the city that's being addressed, the church within that city, and the author, who we will see will be Jesus himself. Here's how it reads. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum, a place of intense idolatry, where the temple of, uh, of Zeus, the altar of Zeus, was located. You perhaps have heard of that god that was worshipped in the early days. Uh, they had their many different emperor gods. They had temples made to their various gods. They had one particular worship to a god that was the god of healing. And its emblem that they worshipped before was the emblem of a snake. And so it's identified as the place where Satan's throne is. I think it's a way of saying, you want to see a place where there truly is unusual, uh, I mean, unusual sin and, and depravity? going. Here it is. It's Pergamum. I can appreciate that a bit, that there would be a difference and that there would be maybe the ability to see how challenging it would be to live in that city. When I was uh, traveling once in, um, in uh, the Far East, I had just landed in Taipei, Taiwan. And I noticed as I got up to spend my time with the Lord each morning, I'd open up the Word, and, and I was just amazed how oppressed I felt and how difficult to pray and to read and how distant God felt. And, well, you have down and dry times, you have other times, and this probably, I didn't think much about it. Until then, we flew into Seoul, Korea. And after a few days in Seoul, Korea, I was just amazed how, how easy it was to read the Word and how I just felt, wow, this is easy to connect with God. And, and made a comment to someone about it, and they said, oh, no, that's very typical. That's what people experience here. Because the difference is this, I would be in, I'd be in Taipei, and, and what you see are little lights in every window. Light, light, light. And I say, why do they have that one little light in each window? Oh, that's their altar. That's where they worship morning and evening. They bow before those altars and they pray to their gods. You got into Seoul, Korea, and I was amazed how many times I saw people kneeling in parks and people praying in prayer meetings and all-night prayer and this, that, and the other. And said, wow, what a difference. Here, a Christian community and the other in comparison, maybe the throne of Satan, huh? Godly people in both cities? Yes. Wicked people, in, yes, but I think that's what he's saying. This is a city that is tough. That will make a difference as we get in the rest of the text. Now, the rest that's said here is a, is a self-description of Jesus. It's Jesus telling of himself that he is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. In verse 16 of chapter 1, if you were with us then, in the description of Jesus, he talked about himself as the one who had the sword coming from his mouth. In a Hebrews chapter 4, we know that the sword, the two-edged sword, is the reference to the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. We'll come to that later. But he's just saying, know this, this is my self-description. And by the way, it's like last week. 
the self-description week in and week out, watch how it identifies with the need of that community. Because when we come to verse 16, he's saying, and I'm coming quickly with a two-edged sword. He's saying, it's me, Jesus. That's who he's talking about. It's himself. Now, with that, we're going to get in now to the formula. We're going to look at it piece by piece. We're going to start by looking at partial obedience. And so if you, uh, if you have your text, follow with me. Beginning where we left off in verse 13, it reads, And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Comes back to that theme of the challenge of living there. What he's doing, he's praising, he's commending these people, saying, way to go in this regard. I will say, you did not drop your faith. This is a place where whenever a Christian went into a labor guild or one that was in the guild became a Christian, they would immediately say, you must bow before this particular God who blesses our business, and so you offered them sacrifice. And a Christian would say, well, I can't do that. And the moment they did that, they would lose their employment. I mean, they would be ostracized from the social community. It was hard. He talks about in the days of Antipas, Nothing else in Scripture about him, but interesting, he is called by Jesus, my witness and my faithful one. Oh, if God would say that of my life, if he would say that of your life. This Antipas, we do read in history about it. The martyrologies of, of the Latin world has left a story. Apparently, he was, he was under the, uh, the time that uh, Domitian was reigning, and, and he was uh, put in a brazen bull don't know what that is. I think of a barrel of some sort. He was put in that bull, and he was, uh, and it was said he was put to death in this red hot. They must have put water and boiled it or something, but he was put to death. Horrible execution. He stayed faithful. We have Eusebius, an old uh, church father, his, historical church father, who writes of that time and says of the many martyrs in Pergamum. So he says, hey, you stayed faithful in that you did not say, I'm not a Christian. I've I reject you. No, no, no. They would do that. In that sense, they were strong. But, and that's unfortunate, there's a but that follows. Look at number, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. It begins by talking about the teaching of Balaam. Now, he says in verse 14, as we pick up, he says, You have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Well, what was happening, if you look at the book of Numbers, you would find out that the story of the king of Moab, Balak, and he was scared to death of these Israelites. He was trying to put them at bay and he couldn't, and so he goes to this somewhat prophet Balaam and he says, Balaam, if you'll prophesy against them, if you will stop what they're doing by just cursing them, and he couldn't do that, but he was not a good, uh, a good uh, uh, prophet. But he basically says, I'll tell you how to get to them. I can't do that, but here's how you get to them. Uh, you just put some stumbling blocks in front of them, and I'll tell you what will get to them. Idolatry and immorality. Idolatry and immorality. Interesting, when you come to the council 
of Jerusalem in the 15th chapter of Acts, they're debating what are the things that are most priority to us that we want to be sure and emphasize and what we should and shouldn't and so forth. And they said, here are two things. Do not, do not sacrifice to idols, eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't do that because that was debated. Could we do that? And immoralities, stay away. Don't have anything to do with it. Same issues then as now. And by the way, the same issues today. Not meat sacrificed to idols, but idolatry, yes. Immorality, absolutely. And then it says in verse 15, so you also have some who are in the same way holding the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which is a people that we know of and they've talked, we talked about them in the, the first epistle to the Ephesians, uh, uh, church at Ephesus, but we don't know what exactly it is. Some think it's the very same teaching under a different leader. We don't know. Whatever the case, here was a people that were compromising. Here's how they did it. They would say, they would rationalize, you know, I'll lose my employment if I don't compromise. That's how I'm feeding my family. I'm supposed to take care of my family. It's how I'm supporting my little church that needs my money so badly. It's given me opportunity to talk to people and, and make my witness of who Jesus is. And therefore, it's not a real God, so what difference does it really make? It's, it's probably okay. When it came to immoralities, they found that some of the things they were doing as part of their being in that community was that you worshiped your God, but you used immoral practices, sexual activities to enhance the worship. Well, it is for worship, and it's a good thing to worship. And I'm putting my God instead of this God, and, you know, maybe these things kind of tagging into it. It's not a huge deal. And what they're actually saying is the same thing we're saying today in our own minds. Do you know the reality is that a man or woman's morality will dictate their theology? Whatever we really want to do, We'll come up with beliefs to support it. Met with too many people through the years. I don't believe this, and I don't agree with that, and I think you're Christian, I don't believe that. And I'm sitting there, I'm saying, I'm not buying it. I don't believe you're really so much against what we believe. You don't want to live the way you know you have to live. And when they come to bend the knee, their beliefs, they come into check. That's not an issue. The issue's not an issue of the mind. It's an issue of the heart. It was true then. And he says, I do have this against you. You're compromising. Well, what does that look like for you and me today? How about this? Let's assume that I ask you the question. Would you be willing to steal from your neighbor? Maybe you don't really care for your neighbor. They have something you really need. They don't need it so badly. You can't get it. But you can steal it. And what if you knew that you would have no consequences at all for stealing it? Would you do it or would you not? And the vast majority of everybody here on this day would say, I wouldn't do it. And I said, well, why not? No consequences. Well, I'm not going to do it because it's wrong. I say, well, why do you say it's wrong? Well, because the Bible says it's wrong. 
Would you kill someone you hate? Same scenario. No, no, no. No consequence. No, 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 I wouldn't do it. Why not? Well, the Bible says it's wrong. Okay, so there's your reason for not doing it. Well, let me ask you, does the Bible say to keep the Lord's day holy? Yeah. Would you feel okay about blowing off worshiping among God's people for the sake of going to your, to your lake house and have a, a good restful Sunday and, and so forth? Well, yeah, I, I do that. Young people. Would you go to the party at high school or college? Would you go to the party knowing that the, the very intention and the design of the whole thing is to stimulate the fleshly heart and to, to be engaged in thinking and sight and things that are just not honoring to God, but, but that's where everybody is and that's where the social life connection is and not to be there is not to be a part. Would you, would you be willing as a Christian to go ahead and participate and be a part of that? Well, yeah, I probably would do that. Well, would, would, you, would you go to a movie that, that you know is such sexually explicit stuff in it that, and you just kind of watch on through and that'd be okay? I mean, even though you, you probably would, wouldn't you agree that it, it, Jesus probably wouldn't say, I'm glad you're there? Would you still do it anyway? Yeah, I might do that. Well, let me ask you, how about sexual intimacy with, with someone that you're not married to? Would, would you do that? I guess, I guess we've been engaged there a bit. Yeah, I guess so. What about being of the wealthiest of the world? And, and the Bible's so clear about that you give the first fruits and the tithe is the foundation and basis. Do you do that with the, the abundance that God's given you? No, I don't do that. But what do we do? We rationalize. Yeah, but, you know, I do spend time praying while I'm driving to the lake house. And I, and I do see the beauty of God's creation like I don't really see in a building. And Oh, yeah, but if you knew my financial situation, yeah, but if you understood why. And we've got all of our same reasonings. And there we have what's called partial obedience. Are any of us free of this? I'm not. I'm guilty. You're guilty. We're all guilty of it. But that's where the good side of the good news comes because there's repentance available. But just in case, what if we don't repent? What if we say, I don't care? Let's go back. Remember the formula? Well, it didn't make sense to me. Well, what's the big deal about going to church? What's the big deal about a tenth of the money? What's the big deal about, about a movie? It just has a feel. I mean, you hear things, see things all the time. What's the big deal about? What's the big deal? We can come up with our rationale why we can do what we do. But remember that formula, partial obedience without repentance equals retribution. And so let's hit this whole idea of failure to repent. Look at verse 16. It says, therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. First of all, who is them? It's a big question to be asked. Is it just the unrepentant? I think not. I think when he says, I'm coming, I think he's coming to the church. And he's talking to the church, and over and over he says, he who has ears, let him hear. If not, 
And he says, I will take the lampstand and I'll, I'll, I'll just shut it down. I like the way Richard uh, uh, Trench writes, a great commentator, a great scholar of the original languages. He says, when God has a controversy with the church or with the people, the tribulation reaches all. I like this. However, the judgment may only be for the foes. The gold and dross are cast alike into the furnace. The dross to be consumed in it, the gold to come out from it purer than before. He says, or else I'm coming to you. You wonder, where is this church today? Doesn't exist. The church at Pergamum. What does he mean when he says, I come quickly? I come with a sword in my mouth. What is the sword? It's his word. How does he use that word? Well, he uses the word. You know how we use the, the little phrase, uh, the tongue is so sharp it can cut you? Here's Jesus saying, I'll come and I'll have to reveal who you are. But it's more than that. How does he do that today? Well, I think he does it through teaching. I think he means for the church to be taught in a way that says, look, I want you pastors to say what I say in my word to my people. Come and bring the sword. It does cut sometimes and it does hurt, but it's good. You need it. I need it. But I think it goes even further. It goes into, it goes into the whole idea of church discipline. Do you know that in the history of the church, when you came to the Reformation, there were three marks, they would say, of a true church. One, rightful preaching of the word. Number two, appropriate administration of the sacrament. Number three, the discipline of the church to erring sinful members. Do you know the issue here is Jesus has a, an issue with the people that are non-repentant, but I think he's saying I've got an issue with the church. You're allowing this teaching to go on. You're allowing people to hold on to the teaching of these two people groups that are so against my word. It's compromising the truth. I'm in a group years ago in California of, of pastors of similar types of churches around the country and where you've got a moderator and the moderator is kind of facilitating the discussion and the discussion gets around to, to, for a couple of hours. What about the standards of membership? What should the standards of membership be in the church? Well, I'm the quiet one in any group. Any group I'm in, I'm typically, I don't say much. And often they'll say, Randy, what do you think? Say something. And I well, I want to hear what I'm, and I say you say something when, when something needs to be said that nobody else says. And I'm listening and I'm just beginning to, the something's rising up. I'm going, oh, and finally, I've heard this. Well, you know, we don't need membership today. Uh, we don't need standards of membership because we don't need me membership. People don't like membership. People don't like to feel confined, boxed in. People want, you won't get as many people at church and you won't. And finally, I just have to say, whoa. Where, where are you coming from? Do you know without something to take away, there's no discipline? I was hearing this story just this last week of someone who was being disciplined. And, and they really loved the Lord, but they were struggling in sin. And when they were told, uh, you know, until there's repentance evident in your life, you can't take the Lord's table. And they wept. It hurt them so badly to think, I don't get the table. Oh, no. Or when someone is told, you know, there's no repentance. We're working with you. We're helping you. We're but you don't, man, you can't stay a member in God's church with, 
with that kind of deep, deep, deep sin going on, I mean, we're talking serious stuff. You can't do that. And, 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 and to see those occasions where somebody says, oh, no, don't take my membership, knowing that it means that I will not be treated as, an, as a real Christian. It means there's got to be question, are you really valid? If, if it's taken away, it should mean something. And here, years ago, just a few hundred years ago, it was a mark of a true church. And today, I challenge you, find churches when you go to them to say, well, do you do uh, discipline in your, in your church? What? No way. Man, that's crazy doing that stuff. Where has the church come? Jesus says, look, I'm coming because you can't do this. I think through providence, his word is declared to his angels that cause whatever. And he says, let that church be or let this church because I'm coming quickly. What a challenge. Scary. You know, one thing I really appreciate about the latter years in Christendom is the emphasis in certain circles, including our own, of the emphasis on the gospel. It's the, what's gospel mean? Good news, right? Good news. Do you know there are people that are now believing the gospel so much that the pendulum is swinging, they're going, you shouldn't have messages like this because now you're just talking about what we've done wrong. Let's talk about what God's done good for us. As if not to realize, wait, revelation is the gospel. This is the greatest news. It's the, you can't get better news. It's what Jesus has done for us. And the truth of it is, if Jesus doesn't come quickly, when we're in sin and unrepentant sin, then he must not care for us at all. Can you imagine your own child and they're, they're doing something so wrong and dangerous and harmful and you say, oh man, good news to them. They don't have to worry about me ever doing anything. They're my kids. They'll always be my kids. I love them forever. They don't have to ever think about anything, but God just let them just know my love. Yes, know your love, but know this, that love comes quickly with a sword to cleanse the heart, to get them where they need to be. That is good news. If you can only understand, God is saying, I want a holy people because it's good for you. It honors me. It's good for you. I will come quickly. You know, when I, whenever I read, I'm thinking, how do you explain? And I see quickly added there. I come quickly. Why don't you say I come? But I come quickly. I'm thinking, I wonder what that really means, come quickly. Why, why does he say quickly? So I thought, well, what do I think of that's quick? The blink of an eye, that's quick, right? And then for some reason, the next thing that hit my mind, I started thinking of an episode in our experience where Carol and I were going to visit her parents in, in, uh, at her old home and, and in her bedroom, the closet had a, a laundry chute, had a little door on it, you pick it up, and then it, you know, for about three feet down going into the basement, you have a little, you know, little metal thing, you know, a little tube, and then the, the clothes go down to the hamper down below. Well, that door happened to be open, and we didn't realize it. And we're putting stuff in the closet, and as we turn around, not little we realize that one of our daughters was just at the crawling age, decided to crawl, and next thing we know, we hear boom, 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 boom. <laughs> oh, my God. You're talking about quick? It happened just like that. Now, we don't know if she's dead or alive. She's gone to a concrete floor. We know that, and it's a, it's a long way. So we got to get all, you're talking about quick, seeing me run, finding those steps and getting down there, wondering, is that child alive or dead? And she's sitting on her little bottom, as bruised as it can be, and she's sitting on some clothes, thankfully, that had been put at the bottom of the hamper. So uh, she was okay, but it happened just like that. And we think, i got plenty of time, no big deal, everything's okay, I can enjoy my party, I can enjoy my movie, I can enjoy this, I can enjoy that, and after all, I'm loved by Jesus. 
No. He says, I come quickly. Please don't think that's not good news. His love is what causes him to come quickly with a two-edged sword. Well, the last little piece here. Last little piece, willingness to repent, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I wish I had a week for that one verse. Can't give you, time doesn't permit. I'll put it this way. He says, now, you do this. You repent. And remember, repentance. Know what it is. Repentance is one Remember this, folks? It's admitting I'm wrong, taking the next step to say I'm remorseful for what I'm wrong. If you say, I don't really care, it's wrong, but I admit it's wrong, but I don't care that I did it, you're not there. But when you find that in your heart, the next and the final step is you come to the open arms of a loving Father who says, my love is enough, and we say, yes, it is. That's repentance. So he says, repent, and this is how I'll reward you. And he mentions two things. He says, I will give you the hidden manna. Well, if you go to the Old Testament, the story of the wilderness journey from the Israelites, and God was feeding them with manna. It was stuff from heaven to feed them. And then we come to John, and the sixth chapter, verse 49, the last text I'll read, he makes it very clear what that manna was meant to, to represent. It says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. He says, I am the manna that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give him for the life of the world is my flesh. He's saying, here's what you do. You stay away from eating the meat sacrificed to idols. You just deny through repentance. And here's what I'll give you. I will give you me, Jesus. I will give you the living manna. And you're going to be so satisfied. Don't give up the living manna for the stuff that you can have on this earth. Then he says, and I'll give you a white stone. We don't know for sure what that means. Uh, there were two usages of stones in the history of that day that may give us insight, and they both really lead to the same conclusion. One of them was that there would be a black and a white stone that would be used by a jury to determine the guilt or innocence of, some, innocence of someone who was on trial. And the jury would come back and either put out a white rock, which would mean you've been forgiven, it's no, or it's, it's not, you're not found guilty, or the black, which means you are guilty. And he's saying, this is your forgiveness. Another use of it, there was a rock that would be given to people to come to certain events. They had to have a certain type of rock, and they would show that rock, and it would be their ticket to get in. And showing of the, you come into my church, you're welcome into my church. Both of them are saying, look, you have partial, uh, partial obedience, you repent, and this is how I'll reward you. I will give you myself in such a way that you'll be satisfied, and you'll be welcomed into my family, and you'll be loved forever. Boy, that is great news. So let me ask you, anybody here who would say, I think my life is marked in a significant way by partial obedience. 
Is there some area that you just need to repent of even now? Anybody here who is hungering for Jesus say, I just want more of him? Repent and enjoy the bread of life. That's the story of the gospel. It's what Jesus has done for us. And remember, part of that goodness is not just to forgive you, but to come quickly with a two-edged sword when the heart resists and says, I don't want to repent. That's the goodness of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to admit our own sin now, and we had a time of confession, but maybe the two-edged sword of your word has come into this place today in a way that has pricked our hearts and revealed some areas of our own sin that we've been neglecting, some partial obedience instead of full obedience. We know you want a holy people, and I pray, Father, that you would hear us even now as we would say, I am so sorry. I'm wrong, and I now repent. And I want to now say that your love is enough, and I don't need these areas of disobedience in order to find happiness. In fact, it's only in you, my Savior Jesus, that I can find the happiness that I need. So, God, would you grant us to go out through this community, and may we be as Antipas. May we be just a faithful witness. May we be the faithful one that you've called us to be. And one day, may we enjoy being in the heavenlies forever. Remind us throughout this series that everything is going to be all right. And for that, we say thank you. In the great name of Christ, our Savior, amen.